0: What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Hi everybody welcome to the parallel mike podcast i'm your host mike thank you so much for joining us today we are going to be taking a deep dive into the mechie world of art and i've got on the show a professional artist who has worked in some of the most magnificent buildings in the world restoring some of the most priceless and valuable stained glass in the world and she's going to be talking about the evolution of art and how we went from building these magnificent structures like the great cathedrals that are all across Europe and the beautiful artwork that resides within them, to where we are today, where people sell a banana stuck to a wall as art and charge millions and millions of dollars for it. Or you have canvases smeared with just smudges of paint. Or you have Tracy Emin's unmade bed in the Tate Modern selling for millions of dollars. Or Damien Hirst, which we're going to get to in part two, who sold dead animals in formaldehyde. How did we go from having this artwork that looked towards the heavens to this money laundering cesspool we've got today that actually takes us further and further towards nihilism and dead materialism. So that's the evolution or should I say the evolution that we're going to be charting in tonight's episode in part one. We have a fantastic conversation where Monica tells us about her own experiences as an artist, how she came to learn about mastery because the art of old used to be done by masters and today we've lost a lot of that so we talk about the skills that have been lost and how people even today cannot recreate some of the techniques that used to be done using all our modern technology and analysis we still cannot recreate things that were being done a thousand years ago when nobody had any electricity. Then as we get towards the end of part one, we start to discuss how many of the old banking oligarchies were actually the patrons of the artists. So many of the most famous artists today actually are chosen. They were chosen by the banking oligarchs, which tells us that much of the art world has actually been used and fabricated to push a certain message and to take us down a certain path. And that takes us into part two, where we talk about the evolution of modern art, who the modern artists are, and who might have been behind them. So a very interesting show. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Members, please head over to ParallelMike.com to listen to the full episode. If you're not a member yet, please consider subscribing. It really helps me and my content. It also ensures that I can continue to deliver great research and bring on great guests. In closing, I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And as always, I will see you all in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast. This is episode number 38. Today we are joined by art conservator and artist Monica, who's here to go into the history of art with us, where we're going to be exploring the concept that maybe art is not all that it cracked up to be, and a lot of what we think we know about art is actually untrue. In fact, what we're going to explore is that art itself has been manipulated for potentially hundreds if not thousands of years to help take us to this place of decay and nihilism where we are today and in part two we're going to be talking specifically about modern art if you can even call it art, and I don't think you can. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Money. How's it going today?
0: Oh, hello, Michael. Thank you for having me on. I'm all right, thank you, and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, me too, and, you know, you are an expert in art. You've worked in many of the most famous cathedrals on planet Earth, or on Earth, should I say. I'll get a lot of comments for that. Don't say planet, but you've worked in a lot of the most famous buildings, some of the most historic and beautiful and magnificent buildings, and I've been in many of them also with you so you've actually really worked with the craft with the art that people still today look at and consider to be some of the most beautiful art that's ever been created we're talking the architecture the statues and you worked specifically with stained glass didn't you
0: oh yes i did for for nearly a decade if not longer and uh i, I guess my take on art is quite different to that of many people i assume where she as said for me art is not only what people admire as a topic but also the craftsmanship itself and when you are a craftsperson you realize how difficult it is to make certain art pieces of art especially those that we can see in museums
1: yeah well a lot of this art that people admire today i would say the people who actually understand history a little bit they look to these buildings the great cathedrals the gothic cathedrals they look at the statues that the greeks built or created, should I say. Uh, they look at the stained glass, which is what you worked on. And this is what I would say irreplaceable art. There is nobody today that can actually create art at, at that level. Would you agree with that? That this is, we're looking at a bygone era. It just simply doesn't exist anymore.
0: Oh, absolutely. Perhaps uh, it would be somewhat beneficial to break my bank... Uh, bank
1: <laughs> Your bank details? <laughs> <laughs> no you can share them if you like with the audience that's up to you i would advise you don't
0: <laughs> my background uh so uh, i'm my undergraduate i'm a a graduate artist, you may say, and um, I have been studying arts, fine arts, actually, and uh, in the fields, especially in paintings, drawings, and ceramics and glass. And then I moved into stained glass. And I went on uh, to study uh, stained glass conservation in England on master's level. And and I, yes, I, I've worked as a stained glass conservator ever since for, for many, many years. And what I can say is that um, we had many interesting conferences where there were lots of talented mm-hmm. and very inspirational people who spent decades trying to figure out how people has done certain things in the past. And there are still certain elements that we can't recreate, even with our modern technology and, and um, ways to analyze, for example, the ingredients of, of a certain specific glass pieces, etc. We can look at things under the microscope and and we can get every single ingredient, mix them and yet we don't get the same effect as they did. So there is so much to what people knew in the past and could do it without all that modern technological equipment and knowledge as we have at the moment and do it far better than we can do it nowadays. So that's quite shocking. <laughs>
1: It is. It's extremely interesting to think that we cannot recreate today with all of our technology and supposedly brilliant scientific analysis, the colours or techniques or strokes that they used to do. But just for listeners who are not aware, you have worked on probably the most important and priceless stained glass on planet Earth. That's right, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. I I worked on many um, windows and and medieval panels that are beyond pricing. (laughs) They there were projects that um, involved certainly large sums of money that we have nowadays, the currency. But one could couldn't really um, say how much they are worth because they are uh, stunning pieces of art, unique, and and that is also a miracle that they preserved up to now. So yeah, from from that perspective, that's certainly a um, fantastic experience, especially considering how rich England is when it comes to stained glass. But that's another topic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and the amazing thing about that is you not only worked on this artwork, the stained glass that is priceless, and you got to see up close and personal the techniques that they used to use and to really understand the craft that most people have no idea about. Most people don't actually understand stained glass, and I certainly didn't when I first met you. You don't understand that there are different types, different styles, different eras, and it comes to the glass and that there's certain types that are just considered profoundly more important than others, but also it's the buildings where they were housed and you got to spend thousands of hours in these cathedrals thinking and meditating on the beauty of those buildings, but also the, the escape and the, the mastery that went into them. So how did that change you as an artist? What was you like growing up as an artist and how did it change you going into this kind of other world that only few people get to see? I mean, most people go visit for a day, but you spent like I said, thousands of hours in these buildings. So how did that change you as an artist and your understanding of art?
0: Uh, that's a very good question. Well, I always appreciated historical art as, as such, but when you are a student in modern fine arts ac- academies or finance schools, you are drawn into what everyone else follows, which is the modern art. And the modern art, at least from my own experience and what I perceive around me, was basically a run-after novelty. Everyone wanted to be the most original, the most shocking, the most thought-provoking, whatever that was. And it it was never an aspiration to be a better person. There was (laughs) more to create some drama around. And that was uh, usually not very much involved with a skill as such. It was more about the concept and the form that the art was meant to be presented through as such, it wasn't important at all to people. So it was quite a relief to change a little bit of that environment and come back to the basics and appreciate what we appreciate naturally without that unnecessary, perhaps, education that we get, uh, especially as uh, artists and art historians. <laughs> and, and that is simply to appreciate something that's beautiful, that shows fantastic skills, expertise, years of work, and um, what we could Call a masterpiece and yes indeed working with with those fantastic beautiful old buildings you get to see in every single detail how skilled and experienced were the people that were doing it but also the people that were fixing it all the conservators of the past I mean I could see layers and layers of different methods of fixing the old stonework and it was sometimes quite ingenious and difficult as well like would you believe it that they used to fix old stonework that due to some changes let's say in the foundations they would start to spread apart and they would fix it together by drilling some holes into old stone and pouring hot lead into it to create sort of like a like a pin to pin it together and that would be at the top of the cathedral on some little, little scaffolding, or even without a scaffolding, or God knows what they had at the time. So you can you can just imagine how brave and and uh, creative those people were. And uh, and then I was working with my colleagues uh, at the stained glass workshop, and also with uh, stone masons, stone carvers, and the things that they could do with just hammer and chisel were again incredible. People used to come to our workshops to see oh, how do you do it? And especially, <laughs> they, they would be very interested also in stone carving. And uh, and I was told that the question that usually popped up was, uh, why don't you use laser to cut all those beautiful stoneworks? Wouldn't it be faster, wouldn't it be more efficient, wouldn't it be, you know, better, etc. But, but you know, the best is still what, what we can do ourselves, that the um, modern improvements are catchy, but don't replace us, at least in that field.
1: That's a great answer. And We'll come back to this in a second because I want to ask you about technology's use in that. And I think that actually goes into part two as well with modern art. But one of the things that I wanted to set straight in the first part and ask your take on this, and we had a little discussion beforehand, which is about the skills that people have today, and you get a lot of people in the alternative media look at these beautiful statues. I mean, we spoke about the Rape of Persephone and some of the Greek sculptures, and they're just absolutely stunning. You know, some of these Greek uh, sculptures of women where there's actually a veil carved across the face and it almost looks translucent, but it's not, it's stone. Absolutely stunning. But you do get a lot of people claim that these were made by aliens, that these were made by non-humans, that they must have been sent here by the gods, and that history is a complete fabrication. Now, whilst I might agree on the latter point, that history is a fabrication, I believe that humans did make these things. I think that we are exceptional creatures, and we are capable of so much more than they want us to believe we are capable of. And What we said beforehand is that if you imagine how people used to live, I would have grown up an apprentice of my father. And if my father was a master mason, if my father was a master um, glass worker, working in stained glass, from the age of about two, I would have been in the studio with him 15, 16 hours a day. And by the time I got to 20, I would have accumulated more hours than the modern person will accumulate in 30, 40, 50 years even. And not only that, I would have had the skills not just of my father, but of his father and his father, and his father, and on and on with every generation, adding more refineness to those skills. Similarly, we wouldn't have had the distractions of the modern world, we wouldn't have have had the uh, low work ethic. It would have just been an all-consuming thing. So by the time I got to 50, can you imagine the level of skill and mastery I would have had over the stone or the glass? So I believe that humans have those capacities, we just don't have the world set up to ever fully express them. And even if we tried, we wouldn't get there. What's your take on this? Were aliens making stained glass moniker? Or is this something that the modern world just wants to believe? Because we can't imagine that we could do such great things.
0: Oh, I never heard of such a nonsense before. <laughs> I'm actually surprised uh, people can say such a thing, but absolutely not. I, I think it must stem stem out of um, modern world being so compartmentalized as well. Whenever you do, you are very specialized in what you do and, and you get to do it when you are already an adult for qu- quite a while. You know, how old people are when they finish PhD or even master's, you know, you're in your mid-20s and you just start a career. While I, I think in the past uh, people doing at least arts from, from, uh, from what I know in middle ages, they used to start quite early on and they, they would start with, you know, seven years of apprenticeship just, just to get to some reasonable level of mastery over, over it. And as you said, they would work many hours day in, day out and, and they would master the craft and this is how you learn by, by doing things. And uh, and they weren't so specialized neither. Just imagine they, they, they would learn everything on the job as such. So they wouldn't necessarily waste their time on unnecessary fluff, <laughs> as I would call it. But nowadays, we, we have to also um, educate ourselves on, on other topics, isn't it, that are not necessarily uh, so indispensable. But also they will learn. They would learn on the job and they would learn everything. So I can speak of stained glass best. But if there was someone who was doing a panel of stained glass, they would not only learn how to paint on it, cut the glass, but let's say they they would also learn how to assemble it, which, which actually every stained glass person does as well at the same time. But we don't necessarily know how, nowadays how to fire the glass without the means of electricity. But they would know and they would have all those additional skills of, of recognising how hot is the temperature in a handmade, hand hand-built kiln. And they would probably had some more or less known to us measures of, of recognising the temperature without those thermometers that we have nowadays, like some sort of sensors, right?
1: So they developed this kind of really refined intuition around these skills where they could intuitively know if something was hot enough and we're talking about thousands of degrees aren't we when you're firing glass
0: hundreds but it's very hundreds. precise it's a very precise temperature so for example to uh fire let's say just layer a collar
1: can you explain to us that process mm-hmm. because people might not be where I've seen it done but what are you actually doing when you're firing glass? You're putting it in a kiln, but maybe you could tell people why and just go through that process.
0: Yes, so um, basically what you want to do, you you put a layer of a mixture that contains different metals in it and those metals in higher temperatures, they react with glass, causing the glass to change colour. So that's, that's what we call it nicely painted, but there is no no paint involved really. But it, it has a consistency of a paint. So you put a layer on it and that layer is like a dust really. So if you touch it, it goes away. So you have to be very, very gentle with it. And it's that temperature and and usually is around uh, 620. Uh, There is a very small window as well where you need to fire it to to get the right color. And so that paint is stable. So you cannot scratch it off afterwards, but also it doesn't burn out. So the window is very small, and so you have to be very precise in recognizing the temperature that you're firing your, your artwork with. So nowadays it's very easy, you just put it into a dial <laughs> and it does it for you, but in the past they had to observe it. So they would build that kiln, they would put those very uh, carefully painted pieces of glass into the kiln, they would start a fire, probably at the bottom, I'm, I'm not sure how they were actually built or designed those uh, old kilns and they would I assume uh, they would have some sort of measures to understand the temperature which could be for example little pyramids made out of a mixture of clay it could be porcelain or something and if, if it started firing or changing a shape or something it would identify or show that person that a and temperature has been reached but that would be a very specific knowledge that they would know how to build that kiln what wood to put when at what point what draft it should be and uh, how also allocate all that glass inside so it doesn't break because that's the, the other thing about um, glass as well it's, it can be very fragile and so as you know it so if you put a cold glass onto a hot surface it can break isn't it so you have to do it also very gently over time so that the glass doesn't get stressed and doesn't break and you have to cool it adequately as well at the same time and you have to reach that temperature for a specific amount of time and it cannot be higher but it cannot be low So uh, there is a science to it. And they managed to do it without electronics. And they've done a great job because I've worked on stained glass dated 1400s and even earlier. And believe me, that glass that has been exposed to all the um, conditions, rain, snow, you name it, UV light has survived until now, 600 years later. And as a comparison, um, in England, there was a great revival of uh, stained glass in 19th century And there is lots of stained glass that we call shadow stained glass, where the paint is just all gone. So you can get it right, you can get it wrong. And certainly there were masters at making it.
1: Wow. So you can compare different eras of glass and see how it's held up over all these thousands of years. And that gives you a very visceral understanding of how masterful they were with these techniques. And, you know, we spoke about this recently just in terms of one of the most basic pieces of building material that we still use today, which is the brick. And I saw a video that I shared with you, or at least I told you about, and it was of somebody testing the strength of each brick by putting it under a a downward force. It was one of those machines that exerts force and you can turn up the pressure of that machine. And the most modern brick was just a modern brick from today. And the modern brick from today started to fracture and it fractured and turned to dust actually after about 600 pounds of pressure. Now, I might be getting the numbers wrong, but the differences between the numbers I'll get right. Then there was a brick from about 50 years ago, it was about a thousand pounds of pressure. Then it was a brick from 80 years ago, it was about 150. And then they got to the oldest brick, and this brick was about 400 years old, and that one held up to over 2500. So the difference between the first one was 600 before it broke, and then the other one got to 2500 and it still hadn't broken. So I just wanted to put that out there because that just shows you the mastery of just the simple clay brick, the most simple building material. Now you're talking about something that's not just a building material; it's an aesthetic, it's a piece of art. And yet the difference between—I mean—and this goes back to the difference between ancient art and modern art. What would you think the what What would you think those stained glass artists of, let's say, medieval England would have thought of the stained glass that's produced today?
0: It depends which one you put, <laughs> you compare. Uh, there are some fantastic artists, and I've, I've worked with uh, with very, very talented people, so I had the best to learn from but there are certainly other projects that are not so good. So it it really depends. But um...
1: You can say it, Mon, that they suck, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen some of this work and, you know, listen, we're going to talk about that later on. But I guess a good question to ask, though, is when it comes to the methods, you mentioned that previously they were creating stained glass and pe- and this would go for all arts, I imagine, including architecture. There's certain techniques certain colours, certain things that they used to do that just simply cannot be recreated. And there's a famous one with stained glass, isn't there, to do with a specific colour that people have tried for hundreds of years to replicate and it's still not being done. And I think you wrote a paper on this, right?
0: Yeah, it wasn't me who'd written the paper. Actually, it was a friend of mine. But uh, before I start saying it, uh, that story, which is great, uh, I wanted just to mention about the mastery of, of the past So when I was telling you about what the uh, glass paint is, which is basically like a powder, there are different ways of making that fragile on a different level, if that makes sense. So you can paint in layers. So what you do is uh, first you mix it with vinegar to have a little bit harder layer. Uh, Then you can um, mix the paint with uh, lavender oil to have a little bit softer layer and it gives a different effect as well. And in between, you can always scratch the light because you can, you can do some scratching to, to reveal the light which comes through the glass then or you can add some lines to it as well and that best is uh, achieved on the la- as the last layer with water and, and gum arabic but the crucial thing is that you cannot make a single mistake you cannot cover it whatever you do wrong it stays there so imagine that mastery that you've got a large piece of glass you're painting a face of a king you want to get it right and you and every single brush stroke that you do has to be right because otherwise your only option is just to start all over again rinse it off so you don't get any second chances so imagine the the skilled hand that those people had and it's very difficult to paint a very sure clear line because you have to paint with a tip of your brush
1: you get one shot at it
0: only one every time so it is extremely extremely difficult and you have to be talented to do it but when it comes to when it comes to that story about uh glass colour it's called streaky red <laughs> And uh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful color. That type of glass that that was used in medieval art. Uh, I remember some great pieces, for example, in, in Cluny. Uh, you can still go to Cluny, Cluny I think, museum uh, in France, and and see it. It was sadly used for art that was showing some sort of fighting and battle, and for showing like blood <laughs> coming out from someone being hurt. But it's beautiful. Color where you have streaks of of red in the white glass, just just uh, mixed together. The red is achieved through mixing the regular let's call it white glass with gold powder real gold real gold yeah and the the gold wasn't as pure as we have it now too and i think that's the secret that's the problem that we have fine refined metals where they wouldn't have ne- not necessarily such refined metals and um, there are lots of very dedicated people trying to figure out how they managed to achieve the color and the effect the way they did because at the moment the best reds that are produced, for example, in Germany, and there is a fantastic company uh, still doing it uh, in a traditional way, glass blowing, all produced by people by hand. The glass is fantastic. They are doing it in layers, so they they have a thin layer of red. And a thicker layer of white to give it stability. But it's it's um it's not the same as uh it's a layered glass rather than have it as a streak as like mixed through it. And the same goes for the secret on how they managed to get silver stain that stains glass red almost. Like it's like really juicy orangey red color it's again beautiful people in the past knew how to do certain things and now we are experimenting and experimenting and trying to figure out what was the secret you know and and uh, some people get it maybe someone already found out how to get that beautiful streaky red or that gorgeous silver stain by the way it's called silver stain because it's again mixed silver
1: well, you're and talking paint. my language, so you was painting with gold, <laughs> you was painting with silver, or at least they was. And this, you know, sounds to me, and maybe this is something you've not explored before, but it sounds to me like a sort of alchemy, too, was involved in this process to make these colours. And therefore, perhaps there was also an astrological element to it that they were making colours at certain times of the year, drawing certain um lunar events or astrological events and that could be part of it too because i would guarantee you nobody would think to do that in the modern era because we've completely thrown that out however we do know and i've mentioned this before that if you create silver stain on a full moon it has a completely different potency to if you do silver stain i'm I'm saying silver stain Stain. i mean colloidal (laughs) silver But if you make colloidal silver on a full moon, it's extremely potent. And if you make it when there is a lunar eclipse, it's almost uh, completely lacking in potency. And that's been tested numerous times. So clearly there is an interaction between the planets and the metals. So I'm going to to throw that one back to you. Do you think that that could potentially be it?
0: You you know, you just made me think because um, I knew um, a very, very experienced uh, stained glass conservator, who did a conservation of a historic window that needed that nice red silver stain, and uh, and I know that he he was always doing the same things over and over again, but he wasn't able to achieve a very consistent um, effects of, of his work, and he he didn't know why. Sometimes it just would work, and sometimes it just wouldn't work. So maybe maybe that was it. Maybe that was the lunar lunar energy helping less or more with, with the uh, overall effect. But no, no one would ever, ever consider anything like that because all we do is we get microscope and we look, we analyse and we see what what materials they are, what, what elements. But it's all physical realm.
1: Dead materialism. I and mean, that's really ironic considering that they were applying these methods and creating art for something that was completely non-physical in these Churches and cathedrals—it was all about the supernatural. I would say the beyond natural, and yet today we look at them in a purely material realm, and then say, "Why can't we recreate it? Why can't we recreate?" Well, you can't recreate it because you don't have the same mind, you don't have the same passion, and you certainly don't have the same skill set and concentration. And that's no offense to you, of course—you are extremely talented. And I think if you went anywhere, what we're going to call it realm, (laughs) anywhere on this realm, you would be considered a master of the craft. However, what we're talking about is there is knowledge that's missing and i don't think that knowledge if it is held it's not held in the mainstream anymore
0: absolutely and i can't see anyone allowing themselves to even entertain you know apart from a little bit of novelty and curiosity or look look at those people from the past being so silly and looking at those nonsense you know uh we we would um yeah that that would be Certainly discouraged at the university to look at those things with with any credibility at all, and um, and and therefore no one. I I can't see anyone uh, following any any of those trials. I uh, mean, it
1: sounds like yeah. the, these people would have been alchemists. They were mixing different materials and matters to create an effect. I mean, that's that's alchemy in its most basic sense.
0: Oh, absolutely, and and you quite often use a crucible as well. <laughs> not, <laughs> not yeah, and the um, a pestle and mortar.
1: Okay so I think we've laid out some good information and knowledge on in terms of what we're talking about here we're talking about master crafts and master skills you said that you do believe that it was humans that created these buildings we're not talking about the monoliths here that's a different that's a different matter altogether we're not talking about the monoliths but we are talking about the cathedrals and these grand opulent beautiful buildings that Really, they were about aspiring to something great, wasn't they? They were about glorifying God and aspiring to something great so that when you went into these places, when you saw that glass, when you looked at the architecture, you was inspired to think of something beyond human. And I would say that today, art is the complete opposite. It's meant to bring you down to a basis, the most base level you can be, almost nihilism. When you look at the art, it's chaotic and it fractures your mind to look at it, particularly when you look at some of the more violent and absurdist art, But modern art, in particular, these streaks, these violent lines. I mean, you spoke about this finesse, this where you can't get one line wrong. And we spoke earlier about the Greek sculptures. You imagine creating one of those sculptures, spending maybe five, six, ten years on a sculpture, and you just break off the nose. (laughs) (laughs) It's game over, right? It's game game over. over. (laughs) You start again, and you're probably going to get fired and uh, lose your patronage and maybe worse. So there was no room for error. You had to be a master, perfect. Uh, And today, you look at what they produce and what is it? It's just violent lines.
0: Oh, absolutely. And think about the price as well of the materials. Why I spoke up earlier was um, glass that uses gold to get that color. Then painting with silver. You mentioned sculpture. That sculpture could be just in stone, could be in marble or oh, granite or maybe some other precious uh, stones. And then the Greek sculptures were actually made out of bronze. Uh, so again, they were they, they were cast, but still all, all of that is very expensive material. So you had respect towards what you were doing and it wouldn't be given to no one. It wasn't a job for those people to do those things, but it was also a privilege to be allowed to have that material at your disposal to do what what you plan to do so
1: well this actually takes us to the next part of this discussion because we're talking about how these materials were expensive and Let's face it, who had the time to spend 30 years working on one or two sculptures? You would have had to have a tremendous amount of money and support behind you. So you needed a patron. You needed a patron who not only enjoyed your work, but would finance it and be willing to allow you to do that. And when we looked at the history of art, and you are an expert in the history of art, but I think even you found some very strange elements when getting ready for this episode. And that's that throughout history, the artists were always supported by the elites the oligarchs were the ones who were supporting the art and therefore the art that we see today and we're told these were the best artists and this was what they were producing maybe not quite so maybe that was just what got chosen by the oligarchs and as we went back to 14th and 15th century italy which family was it that was the biggest patron of all the major artists that today are celebrated can you give us the name
0: uh yes certainly medicis
1: the Medici and, family,
0: yes, and Florence. Uh, it all sprang out from there. But to be honest, when you know, when I was working on so many beautiful um, medieval artifacts, and uh, I also got a chance to work on some sculpture as well, uh, you appreciate how gorgeous those artworks were, those fantastic buildings, especially when you get to see everything from really close up when you are on scaffolding in detail, etc. That I just could not comprehend how someone could call it middle times, you know, middle ages. And at the same time, well, some, some people call it also dark ages, isn't it? So so why there were, and who was actually judging that period of time as, as something mediocre, as something not worth mentioning, uninteresting. And then you come to these renaissance, which I think it, it means probably something along the lines of uh, rebirth and... Uh, and an enlightenment again. So, so you've got that uh, contrast already of of naming only that is accepted, between something med- mediocre and something aspiring to be to be groundbreaking and uh, and worthwhile. So, so only in, in terms of naming, we can already see some agenda behind it, uh, which is very surprising. And uh, when you study history of art. You learned that Renaissance um, came out of Fr- uh, France, <laughs> came out of um, Italy, but actually, I never realized that majority of the patronage was in um, in Florence by Medici's. So that's quite shocking. One family creating all sort of new way of thinking. Because let let's face it, the art f- goes first, the artist goes first, and then somewhat it happens that our mentality follows uh, of of common people a few decades after that. Yeah, it sprang out from from one place and then, uh, of, of course, the patronage of Rome as well helped.
1: Yeah, well, just to give listeners a bit of background, this is why I can actually add something because you're the art expert. But the Medici Bank was founded in Florence in 1397, and it grew to be the most powerful bank in the world. It was lending to popes, it was lending to uh, oligarchs, nobles, and kings and queens of Europe also. And Cosimo Medici, who inherited the bank from his father, he was considered the wealthiest man in the world at one point. Now, wealthiest man in the world back then actually meant something. When we say it today and we talk about Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, these are just agents. These are just agents of people like the Medici Bank uh, or would have been agents back then. Now, he was a great patron of the arts. Even when he was 17, he was creating labyrinth gardens and ornate structures. So he was a big patron of the arts and he also was very close to the church, to to the Vatican. In fact, there's a funny story in which he commissioned for a church to be completely remodeled. And I think he employed Michelangelo to do it, to do the, the fresco painting in there. And the church rewarded him, or the Pope did, by giving him a gold palpable bull that said that no matter what he does, he will not go to hell. <laughs> so, and he was he, and he was so proud of it. Cosimo Medici was so proud of it that he got it engraved in stone above his door that he will never go to hell. <laughs> so, so these are the kind of people we're talking about. I mean, extremely powerful, dangerous people, oligarchal families that went on to run The entirety of europe and of course we know today that many of these banking families went on to create the royal families they uh, intermarried into them and all sorts but venice is what you spoke about and venice were actually going against the medicis they were enemies of florence at this time And i've just got a quote to read you and this one might shed some light on what we're talking about and you mentioned the middle ages as well which is something the venetians were responsible for so let's go to that one in the middle ages the venetians were known as the archetypes of the parasite the people who neither sow nor reap for the Greeks, they were the hated frogs of the marshes in Germany. A folktale describes the merchant of Venice as an aged pantaloon who makes his rounds robbing men of their human hearts and leaving a cold stone in their place. I thought that was a great last line. Robbing men of their human hearts and leaving a cold stone in their place. I would say that describes a lot of humanity today. So if we extrapolate that that was how it started and this is where we got to, it's a pretty good describer of how these banking parasites, as that quote says, have managed to engineer society into nihilism and a lacking of empathy, but they did that throughout. That is how they did it, isn't it? And that's what we're going to be talking about as we get into part two.
0: Absolutely, Michael. Well, in Polish there is that saying that um, you become what your environment is. So if you consider art or culture as as such as something inspiring that surrounds you, then it seeps through to you and into you and you don't notice when when you change and uh, it has a great impact on us because it can be emotional it can go straight into our heart it's it's very visual you can even touch it if it's nice sculpture etc so so it goes straight into our hearts and it just changes us and and maybe we don't notice it but over time i think we would if we consider how much we we have changed through our influence of of art and that was a great tool of manipulation and of uh, achieving whatever they wanted to achieve and then there was a huge difference between what middle ages or medieval time uh, times had to offer and the uh, renaissance art as well our modern culture is very well established on uh, on on renaissance at least from my point of view uh, with our our tendency to be narcissistic and in in love with humankind and an evolution of our possibilities into greatness.
1: Yeah well this is where scientism came in and you know we talk today as we often do everything's inverted we talk about the renaissance as the greatest achievement in modern history the renaissance this was the time of great development however it was all artificially created by the same oligarchs today that people oppose and it was done to take us away from a spiritual path from believing in god to destroy christianity and of course lots of the old artwork and the stuff we spoke about which takes us right back full circle is the old art was to glorify god the stained glass wasn't no one knows the names of those old stained glass artists the masters because it wasn't about that it was about glorifying god And the artwork was depicting scenes that would make people reflect on life, meditate on life, and aspire to something better. The buildings, nobody knows who created those buildings. We might know the patrons. We might know the rich popes and bishops who supposedly funded it, but we don't know the people who did it, the masters. And yet in the Renaissance, we have this whole litany of names who we do know, and they're considered the geniuses. But I've just got a quote for you on the Renaissance to share with you, okay? It can now be stated that what happened to the Renaissance is Venice manipulated both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, leading to a series of wars which drowned the Renaissance legacy of Cusa and Pius II in a sea of blood that culminated in the Thirty Years' War. This was a war that depopulated most of Europe. It set up the basis for an onslaught against Christianity, much like the cultural pessimism that dominated Europe after World War I. The Venetian evil was now to descend on England. So there you go, there's a little bit about the Renaissance. But there's one more thing that I wanted to add before I forget, and that is that we're speaking about Cosimo Medici and how he was a patron of some of the most famous artists of the 14th, 15th century. However, he was also an an ally of the Duke of Milan, and the Duke of Milan at that time was Filippo Visconti. Now, that name should ring a bell to listeners who have been following my podcast from the very beginning because I did an episode all about the history of the tarot called... Why Every Banker Owns a Tarot Deck. And the very first tarot deck that we know of and I think it goes back much earlier, but the what's considered the first ever tarot deck is the Visconti tarot deck, and the Duke of Milan was Filippo Visconti. So there's an interesting link up. We're talking about Cosimo Medici. He was an ally of Filippo Visconti, and for him, the first tarot deck was made, or that's the first one we know of, and there's also the Visconti Sforza deck as well, which was made about 10 years after that. So it all links together. The art was being used back then to transmit alchemical knowledge, and I know Cosimo Medici was an alchemist also. He inherited that that from his mother who was also an alchemist so lots of interesting links here that show that the art itself was being imbued with i would say occult knowledge as well if we go to the tarot decks but i think we're going to leave it there for part one monica is there anything you want to leave listeners with before we go into part two uh
0: yes Yes, I wonder and maybe we could explore it in the in the second part uh, how that all translates into um, Medici's opening as such a, a school of Plato in Florence and translating from Greek to Latin his his works as well and like where is that interest coming from to have a deep dive to about Plato's work. Yeah,
1: I think that's a really good place to start. I know Joseph P Farrell wrote a lot about how these families were trying to instill Aristotelian beliefs rather than platonic philosophy and yet the Medici's did create a school of platonic philosophy so that's an interesting thread to go down but I think this has been a great part one hopefully set listeners up for the kind of discussion where we're going to get into in part two which is discussing just how far we have fallen from the masterpieces we kind of alluded to in part one and that craftsmanship and skill and artistry and then we're going to talk about some of the modern artwork and we're going to bring some of the financial element into it too because really today the modern Art world is just one world of giant financial fraud. It's just a giant world of financial fraud. So we're going to talk a bit about that in part two. But thank you so much for joining us, Monique. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and I look forward to going into part two.
0: Thank
1: you, me too. Okay, that's it for part one, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this long introduction to a part two. And you can see where it's going now. We're starting to understand how these artists were actually being used to take us on a journey. And in part two, we start to discuss modern art and how the Renaissance, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation were all actually orchestrated by banking oligarchies, by banking families who were seeking to control the future, to take Christianity out of the picture and add to the picture a form of nihilism and death worship and that's exactly what art is today it's nihilistic it's hateful and it actually poisons our minds and our society. So we talk about that evolution, but of course, we also have a hopeful element because I truly believe that we are on the cusp of a revival. I don't think it gets much lower than where we are today, which means the only way is upwards. It doesn't mean we can't fall farther, but I think we're close to the bottom. So lots to get into in part two. It's a fantastic episode. I'm really excited to share this one with you. Members, please head over to www.parallelmic.com to listen to the full episode if you are not a member yet please consider signing up it's well worth it we do a lot of fantastic research over there i will be doing some members only episodes too in the coming six months so that's something to look out for in closing thank you so much for supporting my show for listening please spread it anywhere where you think it will have some value hope to see you all in the next one thank you so much for listening my name is mike and that is it for episode number 38
0: you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time,
0: peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence...